We thank you for your word this morning, and we now bring our hearts before you and ask you to speak and instruct us, to teach us, to help us, to build us in faith, and bless your word to our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, let's be seated together. Okay, in that scripture reading, in that passage, um, that's quite a challenging passage. Anyone? Hello? Right? Wow. And in that passage, it says several times, if then you cannot be my disciple. And this passage highlights the call to discipleship and the cost of discipleship. Uh, To be a disciple, a follower, a learner, following Christ uh, may and will come with a price. Jesus uses shocking statements in this passage, and he does that. I don't know if you've noticed when Jesus speaks, he has a tendency to say things that are really shocking to get our attention. And it does that, doesn't it? A hyperbole, a figure of speech that uses exaggeration to make a point. It's not to be taken literally, but you're to see the point that's being made. So don't get caught up so much in what what the words are saying as much as what is the point that he is making. So let's jump to our text this morning in Luke uh, chapter 14 as we consider that theme, the cost of discipleship in these verses. So in verse 25 it says, Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned to them and said... Now, there may be great multitudes following, but why is the question? And people followed Jesus for different reasons. Uh, sometimes it was curiosity. They'd heard about Jesus, and here he was, so they gathered. Uh, some came because they thought that they may benefit from it, or others had the motive to try and catch Jesus out, or whatever, because they were offended or something to catch him out. But curiosity is one thing. Discipleship is quite another. And Jesus is going to challenge them. And it almost seems as if Jesus is discouraging them from following. You notice that? And he does that several times in the Gospels. His words seem to to kind of push, to, to resist. And he does that for a purpose. He wants to highlight the cost and show this isn't for the double minded, this isn't for the faint hearted. This isn't for those who would want to pursue the world. This calling is, is uh, certainly unique and serious, and it may come with a cost. So someone says, I, I want to be your disciple, Jesus. I want to follow you. And Jesus pushes back. He tests it. His desire is that we would push back also. His desire is that we would show a little bit of tenacity, a little bit of faith, and we would say, yes, I know there's a cost but I am willing and desirous to follow you. It reminded me of Judges 7, verse 3. Remember when Gideon is going to go up against the Midianites and they're outnumbered four to one. And the Lord says to Gideon, tell all those who are fearful and want to go back, there's the door. And 22,000 said, really? Okay, see ya. And they left. 
and it cut the numbers down to 10,000. I love that. Jesus says, listen, if you don't want to, if you're fearful, if you don't want to go on, it's okay. You can go. So he turned to them and he said, verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Wow, that's a line in the sand. What, my family? My, my wife? Okay. My, my children? Okay, but my own life? Right? What does he mean by that? Is he literally saying to hate our family? Of course not. He has taught that we would love our family. In fact, Jesus taught that we would even love our enemies. So obviously he is not teaching that we would literally hate our family. He uses hate in a relative or a comparative sense to make a point. This will help us understand. Back in Genesis 29, Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. Now, did he love Rachel? Hello? Yes. Did he love Leah? It says he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served Laban for another seven years. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, and it's comparative, Comparatively speaking, for the love that he had for Rachel, it was like he hated Leah, but he actually loved her. So we understand. Parallel passages often give us understanding. Also, let's look at the parallel passage in Matthew 10. He who loves his father or mother more than me. So there it is. That's what he is making the point. He is not worthy of me, and he who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That there should be no other relationship that will come first or be taking the place of our relationship with God. If there is, we cannot be his disciple, and we will not be his disciple. So he's saying, if anyone comes to me and loves his family or his own life also more than me, he cannot be my disciple. I don't know if you've ever seen this in another Christian's life or experienced it perhaps in your own journey. You see a Christian following hard after the Lord and he's decided, oh God, I'm following God. And then all of a sudden a relationship comes along and that his faith is challenged. His life as a Christian is challenged and that becomes more important. And this person who was zealous and hungry and drawing near, all of a sudden you don't see them. You cannot be his disciple. You can, but it will cost you. How much? That relationship. You say, wait, what, you mean I have to give that relationship up? No, maybe, but not necessarily. But it can't take the place of God in your life. You have to, and this isn't something you make a decision when you get to the crossroads. You make the decision way, way back here before it happens that I will not compromise. I know that's coming. And I decide today that when it comes, I will, I will be faithful to the Lord. So he gives another condition in verse 
back to our text in verse 47, and whoever does not bear his cross and come after me, again, cannot be my disciple. Part of being a disciple is taking up our cross. What does that mean? Well, Jesus took up his cross and, and, and he died. So, he, and before he went to the cross in the garden, remember he said to the Father, oh, not my will, but your will be done. You could say that Jesus was crucified in his heart before he ever got to the cross. You could say Jesus was given over, that his ears were pierced or or crucified. His heart was crucified before he ever got to the cross. He said, not my will, but your will be done. These are the words of the doulos servant, the the bond servant back in Exodus 21, where it says the servant was free to go. But when the master says, when when he says, I love my master and I don't want to go, the master would take the servant to the doorframe of the house and pierce through his ear and he would serve him forevermore. And when anyone saw that ear, they would say, oh, you're a bond servant, meaning you are free, but you choose to serve, yes. But you can leave and have your own life, yes. But I choose this because my master has loved me, and in truth, my master has served me. And here it is. I serve, not out of obligation of some external law or religion, but a relationship with the one who has loved me. And if you saw that earring in the ear of that servant, you know what you would say? You would say, oh, I want to meet your master. If he has loved you and served you like that. So in Psalm 40, verse 6, this is a messianic psalm. It says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. And the Hebrew word there is actually to dig or to pierce. It could say, my ears you have pierced, like the piercing of a bondservant. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. And then I said, behold, I come in the volume of the book that is written of me. I desire to do your will. Oh my God, yes, your law is written in my heart. So the pierced ear, a co-crucifixion with Christ, dying to self, having like in 1 Samuel uh, 3.10, where Samuel says, speak, Lord, because your servant is listening. Not my will, not my way, not my thoughts, not my life your life, your way, your will. Any relationship that's worth anything involves some sacrifice, doesn't it? In Luke 9.23, again, a parallel on this, Luke records Jesus saying, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily, he adds that word, and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever would lose his life for my sake will save it or find it. Notice the word if. If anyone would. There is a you may or you may not. It's your choice. Some will and some will not. Notice if anyone. 
this invitation is open for anyone or everyone. If anyone come after me, and that is the response to the call from God to follow. But he must deny himself. What does that mean? I would offer that it means that I, I deny that I would, the control and the strength and the power and the will of my self-life. There are, it's not about giving up certain things. It's about the denial of the self-life. We could say it's not self-denial, but it's denial of self. It's different. It's going to the cross and reckoning on my co-crucifixion with him. Paul records this beautifully in Romans chapter 6. He says, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. You get that? That's a wonderful finished work, positional truth that looks back to the cross and recognizing your baptism with him and says that you were crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Now jump to verse 11 and notice what it says. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Reckon, this word means to count or to estimate, to suppose, to conclude. And we are to do it daily, right? If any man come after me and will be my disciple, let him deny himself, deny the flesh life, the strength and the control of the flesh life by going to the cross and reckoning on the cross that I, my old man is dead indeed and you have given me a new life to be spirit-filled where sin does not have dominion over me. And we are instructed to do that daily. We are to reckon on the truth of the death of the old man and the, and the new creation in Christ. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I could imagine Paul or any believer in his heart in the morning, we have a, we have a memorial service for our flesh. We have a burial and a resurrection every morning. And we start, we go to the cross and we say, Oh Lord, I am crucified with Christ. But nevertheless, I live by your spirit in me. Oh Lord, not my will, but your will. Not my way, but your way. Not my strength, but your strength. Not my love, but your love, right? Something happens. This is the spirit-filled life. So we come to the cross for salvation, but we take up our cross for discipleship. Salvation is free, but to follow as a disciple may cost me something. You say, what does it cost? Your life. But notice that, the, the, in that back in that verse in Luke 9, it says, uh, for he who finds his life or holds on to his life, loses it. But he who loses it, he finds his life, meaning the life that we were made for in knowing, knowing God. Let's go back to Luke 14, verse 28, and then he helps them count the cost. 
for which of you intending to build a tower? And I thought, you know, if your child came to you and said, oh, you know, Dad, I, I want to buy a house, or I want to buy a car, or I want to travel Europe, or whatever, you would sit them down and you would help them understand what that means, right? You can't just go in without a plan. You have to think about it. And this is what Jesus is doing. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Unless after he's laid the foundation, he's not able to finish, all will see and begin to mock him, saying this man began to build and was not able to finish. He drives it home with another parable. Or what king going to make war against another does not sit down first and consider whether he's able with the 10,000 to meet who comes with the 20,000. Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for conditions of peace. It's interesting that this parable is to do with warfare, and warfare is certainly relevant in the life of a disciple. It may be a battle. We don't win by accident, but we win with a plan and a purposed life. I mean, you've made it this far. It took some decisions, right? It took some challenges. You probably had some battles in your life that you are still following the Lord today. Now Jesus applies the parables. Okay, you must count the cost. Well, how much? Verse 30. Uh, three, yeah. Likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. This is another one of those phrases that makes us go, oh, what does that mean? I have to forsake everything to be a disciple? Is he saying that we literally have to give, you know, empty our pockets and give everything away? Of course he's not saying that. Many of the things that we have and are blessed by are things that God has given us and provided for us. But again, it's about the priority of heart. I can have things, but things are not to have me. Paul said, I am crucified to the world, and the world is crucified to me. Luke 16, 13 says, no servant can have two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, for example. So I may not actually have to give up things, but am I willing to? If it comes to it, to give God his central place and all else be secondary. What does God ask of us, first of all? And my mind went to Proverbs 23, verse 26, where it says, My son, give me your heart. For God doesn't want anything from us unless he first has our hearts. Ephesians 6, 6, as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. It's not just about what we do or our lifestyle, but it's from the heart. It's in faith. My heart is given. So Jesus seems to discourage this crowd, and he seems to push back, to test our decision, to test our resolve. The same thing happens in John chapter 6. You remember when Jesus spoke about coming from heaven, he is the bread of heaven, whoever believes in him or eats that bread would have everlasting life. And, and the crowd stumbled at his sayings. 
What does he mean he's come from heaven? Isn't this Joseph's son? Like, how can he give us eternal life? What does he mean that we would eat his flesh and believe on him? And they stumbled at it. So we read in verse 60, I don't have it there, but it says, therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And then Jesus turned to his core disciples and said, will you go also? Does this offend you also? Verse 66, from that time many, there it is, went back and followed him no more. And he said, do you want to go away also? But look at Peter's response. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So we believe, we have come to a, 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 a real, look, look at that, we have come to believe, we have come to know. I wasn't in that place a few years ago in the beginning, but now I have come to know, I have come to believe that you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God, and no one else has the words of eternal life but you. So I see the door, but I'm not interested. I have chosen to follow and I will continue. We see this principle in the story of uh, Elisha and Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 2. Let's look at it for a moment. Elijah, who was the older prophet, said to Elisha, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. And we read the words, So they went down to Bethel. And then the sons of the prophets, they come and they say, oh, do you know that they, they say to Elisha, you know, the Lord is going to take your, your, your master from you today. And he says, yes, I know. Be quiet or hold your peace or, you know, shut up. I know what's happening. I know what's coming. And then we read again in verse four, then Elisha said to him, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. And again, the sons of the prophets, they come and they're, you know, mocks. Oh, do you know the Lord is going to take your master for? And he says, I know, shh, I know. Then we read again in verse 6, Elisha said to him, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So the two of them, I love that, the two of them went on together. And that's discipleship. There's a pushback. There's a resistance. We are shown, we are, we are helped to see, count the cost. There's the door. You make the choice. You are free. You are free to go or to come. And in my mind, I often think when Jesus said, follow me, he wasn't sitting there waiting he was like, he was moving, follow me. And he was moving. And you had to respond in your heart to the call. Bethel, Jericho, Jordan in this story. Bethel means the house of God. 
You think there's a challenge for a disciple to draw near to the house of God? You think that's contested? Of course it is, because the very core of discipleship is that we are hearing the word of God. We are learning the Bible. We are growing in our understanding and our faith. So to draw near to the house of God will certainly be contested. Then they came to Jericho. Jericho was the most fortified city in the promised land. It was the first uh, obstacle they came up against, and their victory was only found by faith. When we face Jericho, we could turn back, or we could go on and see God give us victory in our lives. Bethel will be contested in Jericho. There will be the temptation to quit. God is faithful. And then lastly, they come to Jordan. We think of the baptism in the Jordan. We think of death to self, to our own will, that we would enter into the promised land, that we would be taking up our cross. And certainly the cross life will be resisted from without and also certainly from within. It's also, just as we finish today, we see this in the story of Ruth. Ruth the Moabitess, as she was coming back to Bethlehem and with Naomi. And, we, and Naomi says this. In fact, it's three or maybe four times that Naomi says to her, turn back, turn back. She keeps saying to Ruth, turn back. Your sister's gone back. Go, you go back. So she says, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. And look at verse 16. But Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. And where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. You got it? She let Naomi know exactly what she thought. Listen, I know you keep telling me to turn back, but take a seat and listen to me. I have counted the cost. I have made my identification. I am following through to the end. I will die with you. Your God is my God. And we read in verse 18, I love this. And when she, Naomi, saw that she was determined to go with her, she, she gave up. She stopped speaking. She said, okay, let's go then. In some translations, it says when she saw that she was steadfastly minded, that her heart was fixed, that she was determined. And then we realize, oh, this girl, she's decided. She's got some spit and vinegar. She's got some conviction. She is going on. I'm not going to dissuade her. She's the real deal. She is serious about this. And they went on together. We read that same phrase in verse 19. May we be steadfastly minded also. May we truly come to terms with the fact that there is, there is one God. There is the God of the Bible. There is one way, one Savior, one truth. And that we were made to know him. And there is a call, yes, to salvation, that we come to the cross. And that there is a call to discipleship that we would daily take up our cross 
we would hear him, his voice would be in our life, his word would be open in our life, it would be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. That we would be steadfastly minded, as the psalmist said, whom have I in heaven but you, and beside you there is nothing upon the earth that I desire. My flesh and my heart fails, but God is the strength of my heart and my life and my portion forever. When blind Bartimaeus was healed of his blindness, Jesus, he, let's see, he cried out and they brought him to Jesus and Jesus asked the question, what do you want me to do for you? And of course, the blind man said that you would give me my sight. And then Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus in the way. There, I've healed you. Go your way. But we read, he followed Jesus in the way. And I was blind, but now I see. I was lost, but now I'm found. And all we follow Jesus in the way, all the way to the end. And this parable ends by Jesus speaking about salt. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land or the dunghill, but men throw it out. And he ends with this phrase, he who has ears, let him hear. That we would be salty Christians, that we wouldn't lose our savor, we wouldn't lose our conviction, that we would be vessels fit for our master's use, and we will follow him as disciples. Amen.